All right, today we're going to go through um, the topic of the final judgment. It's chapter 33 of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And so, um, to start off, in the 19th century, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche had announced the death of God. When he did this, it had a big impact on European as well as American culture. The news that God was dead charged up excitement for people. They thought it was a major victory for humanism. They thought it was, in a sense, a freedom from dependence on a higher power. So just a side note, um, humanism is, is essentially the, the belief that humans are autonomous, that we don't need to depend on God. And if you want to say that the father is... Uh, the father, the demonic philosophy of humanism is the father, then the son could be transhumanism, which is even even more demonic philosophy. And I was just thinking today uh, during Pastor Bob's sermon that the first um, transhumanist was actually Eve. She, she had desired to want to transcend her humanity and uh, reach a new potential. And it kind of mirrors Christianity in a sense because transhumanism is the pathway to get to posthumanism. So in the sense of um, Christianity, we have the path of works, which is sanctification, that God uses us to bring us to the possession of eternal life. And that is through glorification and ultimately the final judgment. Um, so it kind of mirrors in the sense that also transhumanism believes or the advocates of transhumanism hold to a view um, in the singularity, which is ultimately that we gain consciousness and connect with all different types of AI intelligences, and ultimately we have a global brain that connects each, each and every one, one of us through whether it's like um, an advanced technology in the future, which is Neuralink or some other form of uh, tech, but and ultimately, these two philosophies see themselves, or the individuals in these philosophies see themselves as God, and God is not the ultimate judge in this, it's this reality, and, and so they, they don't have to hold to a higher standard. They, they see themselves as a standard of goodness, of justice, of truth, of beauty, and so um, the utopia is the heaven in the sense of transhumanism and, and it's a view that ultimately degrades morality and degrades the beauty of, of, of truth. Now at the heart of the 19th century was the perceived good news that God does not exist. There is no need to fear the final judgment and there is ultimately no accountability or moral accountability for the individual or society. R.C. Sproul says, modern man is betting his eternal destiny that there is no final judgment. He says, this is, that is a fade, tragically fatal mistake. Now, if we want to see humanism as like the optimism of the 19th century, the opposite of that is uh, existential nihilism, which is the view that essentially, if you want to buy, um, let's say you're, let's say you're buying um, humanism. If you look at the toe tag or the price tag, it'll be 
the existential nihilism. It's, it's pretty much, what I'm pretty much saying is that it inevitably results in a view that sees reality as meaningless. So the evolutionists, for example, will see um, themselves as nothing but mere um, cosmic dust or cosmic um, biological mass floating throughout the cosmos. Uh, so there's no, ultimately no undergirding worldview or undergirding reality to their views. So unfortunately, the subject of the final judgment is not viewed um, amongst those who hold to the humanisms, post-humanism, humanism, um, existential nihilism, or even amongst churches in the U.S., some gr groups may take an extreme approach by focusing on teachings on strict laws and severe punishment. We see this in the Westboro, Westboro Baptist Church. However, a general survey of churches reveals a tendency towards preaching a form of lawlessness or antinomianism, suggesting that we have the freedom to live as we please with God serving merely as a moral compass or a genie that grants us our wishes as we desire. Now, the idea of God as a just judge provokes a, a certain discomfort among people. We tend to conceive of God in our own image, defining him in relation to our individual personalities. God is often reduced to a reflection of our best qualities. So, just thinking apologetically, when engaging with atheists, a common counter-argument against the Christian God is that he cannot be good because he has allowed or passed judgment and allows suffering in the world. Now, if we ultimately see ourselves as good and define goodness as the absence of suffering, we project this definition onto God himself. And so we become the fountain of goodness, as opposed to God being the fountain of goodness and dispensing that onto his creatures. Now, these individuals who view uh, life and theology this way, knowingly or not, have diminished G God to their conceptual understanding, apart from how he has revealed himself, thereby negating his oneness or his holiness or his otherness. We have to remember that God is distinct from us. He is holy, and as such, we cannot confine him to our definition of our subjective goodness Instead, we must accept him as he defines himself. So there's a creator and a creature distinction. Creator-creature distinction. God is good, but God, um, his goodness is a holy goodness. And his holy goodness is also, um, and his holy goodness is also uh, a loving goodness. And his loving goodness is also uh, a patient goodness. And his holy goodness is also a patient, loving, just goodness. In, in essence, we cannot dissect God or try to project our views onto him because he is not composed of parts. He is other than us. Now, this concept is known as the doctrine of divine simplicity, which simply means that God does not have any physical or metaphysical parts to him. He, he cannot be divided and so, um, therefore, when, when we argue against atheists that, that they say that the God of the Bible is not good because he has passed judgment, they're challenging the doctrine of simplicity, and they're trying to compre uh, 
break God into parts, and they're trying to take his goodness and subtract it from his justice. But we, when we view God, his ju- justice is his goodness. Um, so are there any questions about anything I've mentioned so far? David. Yeah, so um, the philosophy, it, I mean, if you take it to its logical conclusion, if we are the ultimate standard of, of our reality, yeah, and if, and if, if there is no other, other deity, like, um, I'll touch, touch on this later with the philosophy of Kant, Immanuel Kant, but um, essentially, if there is no undergirding reality, if there is no otherness to um, ultimately judge us, to guide us, then everything we do becomes meaningless. And so that essentially leads to nihilism. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, we can look at the, let's, let's start to look at the doctrine of, um, the final judgment in history. The general opinion, according to Louis Burkhoff, was that in the earliest times of the Christian era, the doctrine of the fi- final general judgment was associated with the resurrection of the dead. It's already contained in the Apostolic Confession, as it says, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Now, the prevailing idea in the early church was that the final judgment would be accompanied by the destruction of the world. So on the whole, the church fathers didn't speculate much on the final judgment. However, according to Burkhoff, Tertullian was the exception. Now in the Middle Ages, the scholastic theologians talked about the topic at length. The the scholastics generally thought that the resurrection of the dead would mark the end of time for mankind. They also believed in, in a general judgment in which all creatures who possess rationality would appear and that in it, it would bring a sense of revelation of one's deeds both good and evil. The reformers also have held to this view, and it's found in all of the Protestant confessions. And we can even see it in our, in our London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Presbyterian uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, uh, we looked at Nietzsche. Let's look at another philosopher um, uh, that paved the way for humanist philosophy to flourish. So Immanuel Kant had this uh, concept called the categorical imperative, he said that there is a necessity for the existence of a supreme judge who would right all wrongs in some future life. Kant's categorical imperative suggests that everyone who has, built in, has a built-in sense of duty, which he termed oughtness, is a foundation of morality. He argued that this oughtness or sense of duty needs a basis to be meaningful. Without it, we can't build an ethical system which is essential for civilization. So Kant essentially believed that justice, where good is rewarded and evil is punished, gives meaning to our sense of duty. But since justice isn't always served in life, and I I think even social justice warriors can even uh, view this, although they have a distorted view of justice, um, they they recognize that there is some inherent evil in this world that, that requires a justice to be 
met, but they, they've distorted and they, they've taken it away from biblical justice and that there's um, due process and there's not um, a social component to it, but there's a, a structure to it. They've taken justice to mean that uh, vengeance is theirs and it's not God's. So they, they've stolen justice from God. So I, I find it interesting that Kant is persuaded that there must be uh, or he, he, he says that there, he's persuaded by the belief that there has to be a judgment in the afterlife in order for an ethical framework to exist. But Christ, he, he declared this, and so did the apostles, that there is, in fact, uh, a judgment in the afterlife. Now, it's almost as if there is an understanding that we will ultimately be judged. Our, consciousness, our, our conscience is ultimately a testament to this. Now, even the unregenerate who do not have the Holy Spirit guiding them still possess a conscience that points their heart to a final judgment. Now, even if we look at like remote places in the world like Papua New Guinea, they have a conscience that guides them, that, that tells them this is right, this is wrong. All throughout civilization, we, we see cultures that see murder as wrong, rape as wrong, different sins that we recognize as wrong. But this, this, this ultimate binding conscience is not sufficient to bring us to salvation, but however, it is sufficient to condemn the, believe, uh, the unbeliever. So that's why it's imperative for believers to preach the gospel, to um, ha- do the Great Commission, to pre- go to the ends of the earth and f- fulfill what Christ has commanded. Um, so Romans 2.15 shows the conscience, and it's, it states, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Now, Many of us have been influenced, whether we believe it or not, or it's so pervasive, especially throughout the evangelical church, the dispensational view, especially of the final judgment. Now, dispensationalism is a way of looking at scripture that categorizes scripture into different time periods. And dispensationalists essentially hold to the view that there is more than one judgment to come. They will generally hold to three views of the judgment. Firstly, they believe in the judgment of nations. The proof text for this is Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Now, in this judgment of nations, it's determined who uh, enters into the millennium period. Um, so dispensationalists have uh, a view called premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism. And it's a view that um, essentially says that we will be raptured before the tribulations and then there'll be a seven and a half period, seven and a half period of tribulation and then becomes second, the second coming and so on. Secondly, they hold to a, a judgment of believers' works. Now they'll use two, Second Corinthians 5.10 for this. And thirdly, they believe in a great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium and their text for this is Revelations 20.11-15. to 15. Now, contrary to dispensationalism, those who hold to a more covenantal framework hold to one final judgment. And it's, th- this is talked about in Wayne Grudem's book, and I, th- I think he does a pretty good job of explaining it. Um, in, in Matthew 25 passage, there's no mention of entering in, into a millennium in the passage. So they have to read into this text something that it's not there. Also, Wayne Grudem argues that 
the dispensationalists, how they view the judgments are inconsistent with the God, how God has uh, acted throughout the entirety of Scripture. Because God does not deal with people's eternal destiny based on their national status, because nations have more, um, that have more conformity to God's standards still have people who rebel against God. So God deals with people as individuals. In Romans 2.11, it is clear that God shows no partiality. Also, some more arguments against the dispensationalist position of multiple judgments can be that the Bible refers not to not days of judgment in the plural, but a singular day of judgment. Now, we can see this in texts like John 5.28 and 29. Um, someone could read that, 5.28 and 29. 5.28 John 5.28 and 29. Someone else can read uh, Acts 17.31 and... Someone else can read Second Peter three seven. John chapter five verse twenty eight. Not more what this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Yeah, there's a specific hour. And the next verse is Acts 17.31. Cool. Right, he has fixed the day. Good. Second Peter 3.7. Yeah, thanks. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Right, so again, we see a singular day of judgment. Um, also, there are passages of scripture like Matthew 7 and Matthew 25 that, and Romans 2 where it talks about how the righteous and wicked will appear together for a final separation. Now, we can move on to... Um, the views, the different views of the judgments, um, there, there are four major views. So first, uh, we can see that there's a free grace or antinomian view. This is taught by um, certain historic antinomians, but also a modern theologian called Robert Wilkin. He says that works will determine rewards, but not salvation. There, there's a new perspective of Paul, James Dunn teaches this. I think the first time it was taught it was around 1977. Um, there's varying views amongst new perspectives. Um, there's also the Roman Catholic view by Michael Barber. Um, there's also the Reformed view, Thomas Schreiner, people like Mark Jones, um, Beale, Douglas Moo, John Piper will teach this. Um, so starting off with the free grace theology, or what I call the modern antinomian argument, suggests that our actions will determine rewards, but not final salvation, or at the final judgment. Robert Wilkin, a proponent of this view, uses texts that highlight the security of believers, and he insists that obedience is not necessary for true believers. So he's saying that we don't need to obey God in order to be a true believer. We can... Live any way we want. 
In Matthew 24, 51, it says, He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So how does Wilkin view this, this verse? He, he says, he interprets the punishment of the unfaithful servants as a painful verbal reprimand at a future judgment, not a physical punishment. Um, there's also the Roman Catholic view. Theologians like Michael Barber argues that the good works of a believer contribute to his or her salvation. Moreover, while Barber affirms that justification is rooted in a forensic declaration, which is interesting because I haven't really seen that from many Roman Catholic theologians, he also argues that it includes the process of transformation that will result in salvation on the last day. So he, he says, yeah, Pastor Bob. Right, yeah. And so it's funny because even if you look at the Roman Catholic Pope, uh, he's supposed to be the vicar of Christ on earth, but yeah, he, he still can go to purgatory. He can still go to hell. But um, yeah, that's interesting. They, they have salvation once, uh, salvation one day and they can lose it. They, they get seated in heaven one day and lose it the next um, they can be seated in place in heavenly places and lose it. So there's no assurance of salvation in the Roman Catholic view. And also, um, in, in uh, the new perspective we'll see later on, there's, there's not much assurance of salvation. So uh, in the transformation, he's, uh, Roman Catholic view is talking about an inherent righteousness which will fuse into a believer and change them throughout their life. And so they mix works and say that will justify us in the end. So, so Barbara is not talking about works as evidence of salvation or as a secondary basis for final justification. Rather, the distinction between the Reformed position and the Roman Catholic position is that in the Roman Catholic position, the works of a believer clearly contribute to his or her merit on the final day or the last day. So Barber actually strangely reintroduces the famous judgment day scales um, upon which our works are weighed. So he cites approval text that refers to the weighing of our deeds and Barber seems to affirm that salvation depends on which weighs more heavily, one's good deeds or bad deeds. So therefore it seems that every believer must accrue his personal treasury of merit. So Pastor Bob uh, went through that on um, his Wednesday study. Yeah, there's a question by Betsy. Um, so therefore it also seems that every believer must accrue his personal treasury merit however because Christ lives in me um, Barber contends that I'm able to make such a contribution to salvation that my own works that they are actually salvific so uh, our works are in a sense meritorious in the Roman Catholic position so done so we'll, we'll look onto the new perspective of Paul. So James D. Dunn introduced this view in 1977, and he agrees with the reform position that initial justification is on faith alone, and that's you enter salvation by faith, but you maintain it by obedience of faith. Now, there are multiple viewpoints within the new perspective. Um, so it's kind of like antinomianism. Whenever you add a ism to the word, uh, there are so many viewpoints, and it's, it's really hard to define it. 
Um, but people like N.T. Wright will deny the Reformed view of initial justification, but people like Dunn would agree with it. So Dunn would rightly observe that Paul proclaims justification of the ungodly and the necessity of works for final vindication, vindication, but would agree with the consensus of Reformed theologians in their views that good works are necessary for eternal life and final justification. However, where we disagree is that he believes that the elect can fall away. Um, also, it's a very complex topic, but he, but he lines the Judaic view called covenantal nomism, which um, talks more about viewing faith as obedience or works as obedience of faith. So which, that's contrary to how the reformers view the Pauline and others. So essentially they, they see that, so they, the new perspective on Paul recognizes that historically all throughout the church, everyone has disagreed with their view, but they recognize or they say that, hey, we're right on this. So, I mean, whenever you see a theology like that where they disagree with the entire history of the church and they, they admit it, that they, they say the church is um, entirely wrong at this position. Uh, that should raise some red flags. So we're going to move on to the reform view. Uh, in the reform view, obedience and holiness are essential, contrary to the free grace theology. In the reform view, works are not the meritorious cause of our justification, but we receive justification through faith, contrary to Roman Catholics. And contrary to the new perspective on Paul, we do not keep ourselves in the faith through works. We are kept in union with Christ through justification, and our justification cannot be revoked. Over time, some people in church haven't liked the idea that faith alone can make someone right with God. Uh, we've seen debates in the past with Roman Catholics. Um, we've had people martyred in the, in the faith for this. So blood has been shed. So um, swimming across the Tiber to the Roman Catholic Church is something that's very disheartening, but it's, it's something that happens quite often in the Protestant church. But one, one big de- debate is about how to match up the idea that faith alone instantly makes someone right with God with the fact that the Bible says that there will be a final judgment later on. So some, some modern Reformed theologians um, have called out some other modern Reformed theologians like, let's say, they've called out Pastor Paul Washer, Pastor John Piper, for being heretics in their view on um, final justification or final salvation. Um, so we're going to see whether or not they are heretics. Um, so there, there's a lot of modern debate on it, but I, I hold to the view that, um, and I think the Puritans and the majority, the large, large majority of the view of the Puritan, the Reformed scholastics, and the Reformed theologians of the 15th to the 18th century to hold to uh, the necessity of works for salvation and the view of the final judgment as seen, as we're going to see. So to get to the Reformed view of final judgment and works, we'll be looking at Thomas Manton, a Puritan theologian from the 17th century, and his exposition of 2 Corinthians 5.10. Someone could read uh, uh, that verse. That'd be great. Well, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive the 
Good, thank you. Um, so before we take in, into a deep dive into Manson's exegesis, um, I'll, I'll, which I have largely taken for the book Puritan Theology by Joel Beakey and Mark Jones, I think it'll be helpful for some imagery. In, in. So um, Richard B. Gaffin, in his book entitled By Faith, Not By Sight, provides a, a pretty amazing in- illustration for the view of final justification. So he, he, he sets the scene um, in a prison. So imagine a prisoner who has been freed by, by the court after his conviction was reversed. His freedom is certain and final, or in other words, his conviction has been overturned. And with that reversal, his imprisonment is terminated. However, he still has to go through the process. He is not instantaneously brought out of jail. But the way the court carries out its verdict is that he is released from prison in two steps. So this this illustration kind of falls in the sense that there's not an inward change and there's not um, an outward change necessarily, but... um, Later on, this is where the example, um, yeah, this is where the example falls apart. But in the same way, sinners who are justified by faith are immediately set free from the prison and penalty of death in their inner person, for they have to wait until their resurrection to be fully liberated from that prison in their outer person. So going over 2 Corinthians 5.10 again, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So one of the first points Manton brings up is that the final judgment is necessary, not optional. So God's plan being sure that means that there will be a final judgment, which he set. But there are more reasons why everyone who's lived ever lived will face this judgment. First, It's to show off God's kindness to those who believe in him. The judgment isn't just to scare bad people, but to openly show how much God loves those who are in him. Now, the way God distributes his rewards, um, he gives his rewards to those who have done more good works. So those who have done more good works, he displays his love of complacency or his love of friendship to them. So there's a sense in which God loves those who do more good works. Now, that, that might um, be kind of hard for us to grasp, but there's th- a threefold love uh, in, in, in God that we see. There's uh, benevolence, beneficence, and complacency. So there's distinction between the love. Um, so while being forgiven and made better already shows God's love, the final judgment will be even more special, where God himself will welcome believers into his home. Second, it's to prove to the wicked that they were wrong and didn't change their ways. Their sins will be remembered, showing that God's punishment is fair. Third, it's to prove that God's fairness demands a difference between good and bad people. So the final judgment will make things right, making the wicked suffer for their wrongs and rewarding the good. God's fairness and how he's warned about future judgment through past events also makes the final judgment necessary. Even those who don't believe know deep down that they deserve punishment. I, I, think, um, I think in the preface of Jordan Peterson's book, uh, he had a, uh, a psychologist write in the beginning of it, and he said, in the, I'm paraphrasing it because I don't know the exact quote, but he said something to the effect of everyone deep in their heart 
wants to be judged. So that's an interesting quote because it kind of conform or it kind of lines with what Immanuel Kant was saying, and how we see um, the idea displayed throughout Pauline letters um, that there is a certain conscious or awareness, even though it might be suppressed, that there is a will be a final judgment. So believers trust in the final judgment because the Bible says so. Also, Jesus has his reasons for the final judgment. One, to show off his glory, to get what he brought to bought in uh, the purchase of salvation and to welcome his followers home, to check what everyone has done with what he gave them in stewardship. And so the final judgment is needed because of God's equity or fairness. What he's done in the past our consciousness and Christ's importances. So, is there any questions so far and anything we've discussed? Pastor Bob, and then. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right? We don't want to believe in justice because other people are evil. I'm a good person. And so what we've seen in the flip side of that is the resistance to, to the concept of the final judgment. We've seen that more in modern secular worldview where we embrace atheism, agnosticism, because if there's no final judgment, as Kant says, and no ethical framework holds up, why be good? Do whatever works for you. Right. Um, and and the, I think this connects with the idea of that there will be gradations of punishment in hell. Not, not necessarily in the view of how the Roman Catholics view it, but I mean, obviously God being a just judge. Right. Right, and, and by the law of contraries, we can see that even in heaven, we'll have greater levels of glory, right, and through our rewards. So Justin and, and, and Jason, I mean, uh, David and Jason. Right, yeah, I mean, the the besetting sin of our age is pride, and one of the marks of pride and naivete is realizing or being, having 
the sense of belief that I do not have um, the propensity to become the most evil version of myself, that I don't have the potential to become Adolf Hitler or Mao or Stalin or Pol Pot or any other um, leader who's caused terror. But it's important that we we see ourselves rightly. We still possess a flesh, so we have the potential to sin. So that that should bring us to greater levels of humility, that we, we have this potential in us to desire evil, it should bring us to holiness to cause us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Uh, Jason? Right. Yeah, I, th- I think some theologians will hold to the view, I think wrongly, very wrongly. It's like, um, I think it's a very bad error that you can, the, um, you don't have to preach the gospel. People who haven't heard this, the, um, the gospel will be saved. Like Tony Evans holds that view. Uh, but the exclusivist position is that um, those who have been saved, I mean, sorry, who, who hear the gospel, who know the who have been revealed the special grace or the special revelation of God are the ones who God has um, elected. I mean, even in the even in the sense of dreams, if we're going to diverging from this, um, it, like we hear stories of Muslims talking about how they've had dreams. Now, God can. It's. I think this is even consistent with the continuationist and cessationist position. Uh, both views can hold to this, is that God can speak through dreams, but he uses the means of scripture to speak in those dreams. So it would be consistent with what he uses in scripture. Um, so he can bring Muslims to faith through that. Um, but yeah, uh, that's just, I digress. <laughs> so second point, all people without exception will be judged. Thomas Manton believes that everyone without exception will face judgment as mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He explains that this includes people of all ages, genders, nationalities, status, wealth. Um, You can go down the list of uh, critical theory views. (laughs) Those all people would be judged. There's no privileged, unprivileged group. There's no um, disparity that we can look at that that will not be judged. God is no respecter of persons. Um, but he breaks down the different groups of people who will be judged into, into several categories. So adults and babies, living and dead at the time of judgment, good and bad individuals, believers and non-believers, rich and poor, and people with different roles in the church, like leaders and regular members. Uh, he stresses that even church leaders will be judged, not just as Christians, but also for how they, well they fulfill their roles. So ultimately, 
Every person who ever lived will be judged. Manton is clear that everyone, including believers, will face judgment. This also leads Manton to talk about how Christ will be the judge. So the third point, Christ will be the judge. Manton ponders who will judge the world, which raises the big question about Jesus. He wonders why the honor of judging falls on Christ, whether he'll judge based on his divine or human nature or both. Manton believes Jesus will judge according to both his divine and human natures, but he emphasizes the role of divine nature in this particular task. So Jesus needs wisdom to understand everything and make fair decisions, fairness to give sentences, power to make sure everyone stands trial and is punished if necessary, and authority because God picked him to judge. Manton argues that Christ will judge as the God-man, that is, according to both of his natures as the incarnate son. As the God-man who is truly God and truly human, Christ's wisdom and understanding is twofold, divine and human. So although his human side has limits, Jesus knows more than anyone else. So while on earth, he can understand things exceptionally well, but still had the limits of a human mind. Um, I've been reading this book recently by, um, I think his name is Peter J. Williams. A pro, uh, it's entitled, The Surprising Genius of Jesus. Uh, when we look at Jesus, we, we don't automatically think of someone who was a genius. We, we look to people like um, Einstein or uh, Sproul or uh, Stephen Hawking or any other person. But when it comes to genius, uh, Jesus had a mind that was free from the noetic effects of sin. So he, he didn't have the limitations that we possess so he was able to grasp things. He was able to understand things in a more full, in a more uh, pronounced, in a more beautiful way. Um, so it was similar to how I think Adam was in the garden. He didn't have those limitations of sin on his mind. Um, he didn't have a sinful flesh. So I think a lot of people make the mistakes of believing in that Christ had a sinful flesh. He was subject to temptation, as, as Pastor Bob talked about today, but he didn't have a sinful flesh. Um, so, also, um, Manton understands that the mysteries involved between Jesus' divine and human natures like other Christian thinkers. So, Christ possessed a double knowledge, one according to his divine nature and one according to his human nature. He also possesses a double righteousness. Uh, Thomas, uh, 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 Manton goes on to write, and both are exact and immutably perfect. So righteousness is essential to God's being. For humans and angels, holiness is like a super added quality and therefore something that can be lost. As it was with Adam and a number of angels, and um, so, so regarding Christ's divine nature, he is holiness itself. Because of the hypostatic union, his human nature was sanctified and it was impossible for him to sin. Um, so he was impeccable, which means he was not able to sin during his states of humiliation and exaltation. So both natures will play a part in the final judgment, but as above, his righteousness belongs chiefly to his divine nature. So number four, the manner of the final judgment. Is there anything that you guys have questions or comments before I move on? Pastor Paul. Judge according to his 
Right. Yeah. That's a good point. We'll be judged according to his word by passive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Pastor Bob brought that up, and we, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Pastor Bob. Yeah, I mean, Pastor Paul. That's a, it's a scary verse for sure for the unbeliever. Yeah. Oh, um. <laughs> yeah. So I think, um. There, there's certain theologians like. Uh, Patrick Abendroth, Mike Abendroth, um, Scott Clark, who, who really I, I've listened to their views and they they kind of they really don't understand they strawman um, Piper's view, they conflate it with Roman Catholic views and says um, that we're going back to Rome and they say that a view of final justification, which is really it's really confusing the word final justification, but it's essentially a final vindication that will be um, showcased that our works are um, displayed before God and also that God will be vindicated before all men. Um, they kind of, they straw man uh, Piper's view and Shriner's view that, um, yeah, if, if you want it's to, a, it's, a, it's a complex topic. I don't think we have the scope of talking about the entirety of it here, but it, I'll, I'll definitely be able to talk about it later if you want. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the manner of the final judgment. Manton says nothing can be hidden for Christ. So for the judgment to be fair, he needs to know everything everyone has done. He also says angels will help gather people for the trial and take them to their final places. Everyone must be present because the judgment is serious, like a capital offense trial. So Manton explains that Christ will reward the faithful based on their good deeds and punish the wicked for the evil ones. He says that not only will everyone physically appear for trial, but also their hidden thoughts and motives will be revealed and judged. This means that secrets won't stay secret, and everyone's true selves will be exposed. So Manton mentions three books that will be opened at the final judgment. The Bible as a guide, people's consciences as witnesses, and God's memory as a record. He says God will perfectly reveal people's sins, Angels will testify against them, and the word of God will accuse them. So a really important point is that God will be vindicated through the ministers who preach faithfully, who will also provide evidence against sinners. So people's consciences will, conscience will convict them of their guilt, and they'll condemn themselves with their own words. Manton says that not only will the wicked judge each other, but the righteous will also play a part in the judgment. Finally, he says that unbelievers' actions in life will reveal their sins. Manton shows that the final judgment will involve Christ, angels, ministers, the righteous, and the wicked, all testifying to God's fairness and vindicating him and rewarding the good and punishing the bad. So Piper has a whole book um, titled uh, Justification of God, if I remember correctly. 
But I think he does a, a really excellent job of going through uh, the vindication of God and how God will finally be vindicated. Um, even the most one of the most prolific um, commentators on Romans, Douglas Moo, would agree with Piper on his view on vindication and on um, final salvation. Um, even, yeah. So there, there's number five, the, the subject of the final judgment, namely things done in the body. Pastor Bob. Right. They're all witnesses, and everything will stand as it is ever being. In other words, no, no one, no one can cry foul, no one can appeal. Right. Yeah. So this. Appeal in the court of law, in 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 here, in this life. Why do we appeal? Because we appeal based on the fact that there could be an error in judgment. Right. That's good. So no one will be able to stand before God and uh, say, "Yeah." That's a good point, Pastor Bob. So point five, point five of the subject of the final judgment, namely things done in the body. So Christ's judgment will be based on what people have done in their lives, whether good or bad. So Manton, Manton explains this in three parts. Why works mattered, how they're considered in judgment, and what roles they play in punishment and rewards. So the main reasons for the final judgment are to show God's glory and the vindication of God's righteous judgments, as we've seen. But Manson says that looking at people's actions will show God's holiness and justice. So God's delight. So God delights in the holiness of the saints, and when they do things, but also He hates sin and sinners. So on Judgment Day, He'll reward good things people did and punish the bad things. So Manton explains that God will reward the good and punish the bad to keep his promise and show his love and mercy. Manton goes on to write and says that people's, the people's good deeds don't earn them salvation but, um, because everyone sins. But God's grace or undeserved kindness will be shown by rewarding believers with eternal life. So the second reason for judgment is to show that everyone's sentence is fair and that God is a just judge. So Manton says that Christians are judged based on both their faith and their actions. So those who say they believe in Jesus but don't act like it will be judged differently. Manton believes that good works come from a heart changed by God's grace, not just following rules. Pastor Paul is very uh, strong in this point. He says we must have a heart conversion instead of a head conversion. Um, so Manton believes that good works come from a heart changed by God's grace, not just by following rules. He says that God will look at a person's whole life, not just a few actions to judge them. Finally, Manton talks about how people's work, works affect their punishment and rewards. He says that what people do will influence what happens to them after judgment. So people who keep doing bad things will get worse punishments, while those who keep doing good things will get better rewards. Overall, Manton emphasizes that God's judgment is fair and that people's actions show their true beliefs. So we really have to distinguish. It's not that works are meritorious in gaining us eternal life, but that they are, in a sense, uh, for the believer specifically, that they will provide us with the means for rewards in heaven and 
uh, a vindication of God and vindication of ourselves and the possession of eternal life, but not the right to eternal life. That we'll talk about this later, the right versus possession distinction. So number six, the end of the judgment. That is the rewards and punishments that awaits each person. Tom Smith argues that if no rewards or punishments were awaiting us after the final judgment, the whole process would just be a show with no real meaning. On that day, good people would be separated from bad people. The separation will last forever, with some going to heaven and others going to hell. The good people will be comforted, but the bad people will suffer. Life on earth has its ups and downs, but the life after judgment will be either eternal joy or torment. Manton explains that in hell there's both loss and pain. The punishment of loss is being separated from God's love and all the good things that come with it. Um, the punishment of pain comes from a guilty conscience and the wrath of God. The punishment is eternal, just like the happiness in heaven for the righteous. Some people wonder if it's fair for a momentary action to deserve eternal, everlasting punishment. But Manton says that even though humans can't earn things from God, they can, etern- they can earn eternal punishment by going against God's laws. God has warned us about this punishment. It's only fair because people choose sin over God's law, love without knowing his consequences. So once judgment is passed, there's no going back. The punishment will be swift and final. The righteous will also have a role in judging the wicked, showing, just how, just showing how just God's decisions are. In the end, the righteous will fully experience the joy of being saved while the wicked will face the consequences of their actions. So to summarize the reform view, we have to look at the order of salvation. For the Christian, we have to walk the path of good works. So no one else can walk this path for us to possess, to possess eternal life or possess the vision of Christ. But we have to remember something. The path that has been prepared for us has been predestined. So that if we are a child of God, so if we are a child of God, we will walk this road by necessity. And not only will we walk the road by necessity, but we will walk it because God has promised that we will walk it. And so he predestines us to walk on this path. I think this is a, a strong case against a Roman Catholic view of, of uh, persever- uh, argument against the perseverance of saints. And it's also a strong view against the new perspective on Paul that you can lose your salvation. If we understand that we are to walk and God will ultimately, through eternity past, he has ordained us to walk in this path. Pastor Bob. Right, yeah. Pastor Bob says the conflation of sanctification and justification are the two main issues in Roman Catholicism and uh, new perspectives. Yeah.
good sense that a lot of the the things that you have been um have you been that you have been saying in regards to what has happened in Judgment Day, um, would it be safe to say that God's body is going to judge us basically basically using a standard of how we yeah, that, that's definitely one of the standards, yeah. That it can be condensed. How we love God and also how we love our neighbor. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So how do we love our neighbor? I mean, this will be, um, so even in the case of how we love our neighbor can be seen in the view of uh, the fetus in the womb. Um, Some people don't see the fetus as a living living person. But as Christians, we recognize the inherent quality in, in nature and the intrinsic worth of babies in the womb because they're made in the image of God. So if you see people advocating for life, that's a work. Um, God will reward us based on that work. He will give us rewards. He will, in a sense, the more works we do, the more God will love us based on the love of friendship or the love of complacency. So this kind of gives us a, a striving in the sense to do more works and have a, a form of holy motivation to do good, to do good, to love our neighbor more, to love God more, to do um, more works, to strive after holiness, to kill sin, um, to walk in vivification. So yeah, yeah, that's a good point you brought up. So, so for the Christian, we have to walk the path of works to possess eternal life, but we have to remember something. The path has been prepared out for us. Our works are predestined. So for a child of God, we will walk the, this road by necessity, So it isn't as if we can stop walking the road of works or that we will stop doing works as the new perspective teaches, but because God keeps the elect in him, he secures our justification. So sanctification, just as much as justification, is a gift from God. God keeps us on the path of sanctification to ultimately glorification and the vision of Christ and seeing him face to face and judgment. So he keeps us on this path Ultimately, so justification, sanctification, glorification. So justification by faith alone, this, you got to really uh, understand this. So justification by faith alone is the foundation. Roman Catholics would say that justification by faith plus works plus grace plus God and uh, working through us is the foundation. But in the reform view Justification by faith alone in Christ alone is the foundation. So you're accepted by God only because of Christ. Justification is the foundation. You are accepted by God only because of Christ. You have the right to life, which is associated with our justification, initial justification. We have the right to life because of our justification by the imputed righteousness of Christ, which he gives to us. It's a forensic righteousness that is not of our own. It's alien to us. So, but also, you will have an inherent righteousness 
that God gives us that will grow. And so you will possess eternal life if you have works to accompany that imputed righteousness. So why will the Christian be able to possess eternal life? Because our works have been prepared for us in advance. Our works will also be judged on the last day and rewarded. So it will never be on the basis of forgiveness or ultimate acceptance of, by God. Our works will never be the basis, but is a secondary ground for heavenly rewards. A lot of these perspectives, new perspective, Roman Catholicism, they keep it as the basis. But the reform view is that, and the historic Christian view is that this is the uh, justification by faith is the foundation. So our imputed righteousness is the basis for us to get accepted into heaven, but our works will aid us in gaining heavenly rewards and the possession of eternal life. Should this cause people to despair regarding their future judgment? No. If you are a Christian walking in righteousness, there's only joy. However, the hypocrites should fear, as it states in Matthew 23 and 25. So that's the end of uh, the final judgment. If anyone has any questions or comments, you're free to go along. Tom. Yeah, so previous to regeneration, we were a slave to works. Now we're a slave to, I'm sorry, we were a slave to sin. Now we're a slave to works and righteousness. We're a bond slave now. We're servants of our master. So yeah, thank you guys for listening and hope this blesses you. Let's uh, end in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for um, this imputed righteousness which you've given us, the justification the sanctification and ultimate glorification and final judgment that you've prepared for us in advance. We thank you that we don't have to worry, that you've secured us, you've secured us in heaven, you are going to have us persevere in the faith, that we don't have to worry about our final destination, that we can trust in you for assurance of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.